1: you know the burnout aspect if you if you don't pay attention to your own mental health and emotional health and obviously that means that then you're not able to take care of others or the planet
0: how does our mental and emotional well-being impact our abilities to serve those that we love our communities and our planet What is it that actually motivates behavioral change and what does this mean for us as people wanting to spark positive change in our own lives as well as in the lives of those around us? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor Arbor Teas for helping to make our work possible. Arbor Teas is a small family owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in all of its practices from the sourcing, packaging, use of renewables to power its operations and more. I'm excited to share more about their work later, but for now to our episode, let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the Chief Science Officer at Wisdom Labs, a San Francisco-based company solving our problems of stress, burnout, anxiety, and loneliness in the workplace. As a Harvard-trained physician, she focuses on the intersection of lifestyle medicine, behavior change and technology, and supporting healthier workplaces and communities using the science of mindfulness, resilience, and compassion. If you've been listening to Green Dreamer for a while, you probably know that we place a huge emphasis on personal sustainability in addition to environmental sustainability as being key to supporting everything that we do. And we're actually going to take that a little further, Today, and explore how wellness and mindfulness can indirectly support a more sustainable planet. So, let's dive in. Green Dreamer, starting off with what inspired her dedication to holistic wellness, here's Dr. Parneet Paul.
1: So, I grew up in uh, Bombay, India. That did some really wonderful things for me, because growing up, I was just sort of immersed in a culture that has a very holistic way of thinking about health and well-being. So I was exposed to yoga, I was exposed to meditation. And in addition to, you know, just going to the doctor, the traditional um, allopathic doctor when we were sick, we also knew that there were other ways of addressing wellness, such as Ayurveda, traditional Indian medicine, um, homeopathy, and many other old ancient ways of staying well. And so this whole idea that our health is the byproduct of our lifestyle, you know, food is important, moving is important. And also I think just sort of a more foundational idea that we are more than the sum total of just our brain and body and cells or even mind, that, you know, we have a connection to something that's bigger than ourselves. And also this idea of community and family and how important Those are uh, for our health and well-being. So, So I was really lucky growing up in that kind of culture. So I just feel that, you know, holistic wellness just sort of came very naturally to me. So when I later went to medical school and then when I moved to the U.S. and so on and practicing as a physician, I always was interested in this idea of integrative health. And then as far as sustainability, thinking about the environment and the earth, uh, you know, those ideas I started thinking about a little bit later, uh, probably in my mid-20s or so, and and it happened quite um, accidentally. I I stumbled on a talk by uh, Bill McDonough and Michael Braungart, the founders and creators of something called Cradle to Cradle, this movement many years ago that they outlined in a beautiful book that, you know, uh, I encourage everyone to read. Basically, they took this idea from nature and they pointed out that in nature, there's, you know, zero waste. And how could we take that idea and use it when we create products as, as human beings? And so they really encouraged this kind of radical thinking of even if it's a material product that we create, is there some way for us to cycle it or bring it back into the system of the things that we use in such a way that we minimize uh, waste? So for me, that was very inspirational. And that was sort of the trigger to start thinking about wow, you know, am I living sustainably? And, you know, what else can I do?
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you initially got into th- the field of Western medicine. Did anything frustrate you about this field that led you into the field of lifestyle medicine?
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I, you know, I I came to the, you know, my career path took me through medical school in India, and then I came to the States for my medical residency. And I was really lucky to get into some amazing Ivy League programs um, for my uh, specialty training. But then what I found was that by the end of residency, I found myself getting more and more disenchanted just with the way that the healthcare system was set up. And also, you know, back then, I found the emphasis in our training was always about treating people when they were really, really sick. And nobody was talking back then, and this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, about prevention. And I was also struck um, at that point with the data, because when you look at the data, the majority, 75%, even higher, of healthcare costs in the U.S., come from the treatment of chronic lifestyle-related diseases. So these are things like obesity and diabetes and heart disease and stroke and cancer and autoimmune disorders, mood disorders, and so on. But the, the other uh, interesting thing about that data is that 80 to 90% of these diseases are completely preventable when we pay attention to our lifestyle. So the food that we eat, how much we move, how much we sleep, how we manage our stress. And so for me, that statistic that, wow, you know, we can prevent the majority of these lifestyle related diseases by just Paying more attention to our lifestyle, but also the fact that, you know, there wasn't a lot of conversation around that. There weren't really a lot of incentives in the traditional healthcare model for physicians to emphasize this aspect of well being. So, yeah, so all of these things sort of came together for me at the end of medical residency and really informed my decision. It was a very difficult decision back then to to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to move away from traditional clinical practice and explore uh, well-being, what that might mean. Uh, explore the business of well-being and try uh, try to think about how I can help individuals optimize their lifestyle to stay well. So. When I started going down that route, I ended up doing, I I first of all realized that I had a lot of learning to catch up on because there's a lot around nutrition and exercise and so on that you don't learn in medical school. Um, So I made sure that I caught up on all of that information. And then I um, directed a couple of wellness spas. I managed an executive health practice where we really focused on optimizing and creating wellness uh, programs for our clients and patients. And then I... Know along this path, I just realized that you know you can create the world's most amazing well being program for an individual, Uh, but often what happens is you know when they go back home and go back to their regular lives, you know, life just gets in the way, and so behavior change is really hard. It's one thing to know what to do, and I think most of us know the right thing that we need to do for our health and well being, but it's there's a huge gap between knowing and doing, and so I became very interested in the science of behavior change and why do humans do the things that they do. And I realized that if I really wanted to have a broader impact in well-being, the workplace becomes a very natural place to do that because you can have a a larger, um, you know, you can do things at a larger scale. And so that's what sort of led me down the path of exploring how to bring more of this lifestyle medicine into the workplace. And then four and a half years ago, I met the co-founders of Wisdom Labs. They asked me to, to join them. And I've been the chief science officer at Wisdom Labs now, where we're really focused on one aspect of, of our lifestyle, which is our mental and emotional um, health and well-being in the workplace.
0: I definitely want to dive deeper into behavior change a little later on, but to start with, I don't have the specific numbers and maybe you can share your expertise on this, but across the board, we're experiencing increasing levels of stress, burnout, anxiety, and loneliness. What are your thoughts on what the driving forces are behind this negative trend?
1: Yeah, so uh, definitely, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, the data shows us very clearly. So stress levels are increasing in, you know, in the U.S. alone. Uh, Stress in the workplace uh, costs upwards of $300 billion in terms of the costs of taking care of the outcome of that stress. Anxiety and depression rates are increasing. In the U.S., suicide rates are at a 30-year high. In the U.S., one in four people uh, report that they don't have anyone that they can talk to uh, when something important, whether it's good or bad, happens in their lives. Um, And so, yeah, loneliness uh, and social isolation are increasing as well. And in fact, loneliness is slated to be the next uh, biggest health epidemic uh, in our society. And it's not restricted just to the U.S. You know, we're seeing similar trends um, globally. And so there are many, you know, many different complex factors that that obviously contribute to this. But a couple of important ones in my mind are, are first just sort of this emphasis in our society and business and in the workplace around, you know, hyper growth and profit uh, at at all costs. And so, you know, just um, the incentives are aligned in such a way that it favors the old extractive models. And as you and your listeners, I'm sure, are really well aware, aware that, you know, we're in really bad shape, because this has come at a huge price in terms of our planetary resources. But then on on a sort of more personal level, I think, you know, when we work in businesses like this, or when we're surrounded by a culture that thinks this way, it affects our own mindset. And I think we're surrounded by messages of that in order to be happy, in order to be successful, I need more, I need more things, I need to consume more. And so we, we get caught up in this mistaken notion that It's something external that's going to make me happy. And then, you know, the the use of our technology is not helping the situation. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of technology. It can do so many wonderful things. But I think we have also seen that the misuse of technology or the way that it's designed, you know, how we use social media is having a direct impact on our levels of stress. People are feeling more anxious. There's a lot of social comparison on social media that's affecting especially, you know, teenagers. And it's also sort of widening this the sense of loneliness, uh, and not feeling connected with others, because we're constantly on our devices. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just in general, uh, the other aspect is that, you know, nobody teaches us how, how am I supposed to manage my stress? How am I manage? Uh, how am I supposed to manage difficult emotions? You know, these are not topics that are uh, very broadly discussed. Um, yeah, so I think that's, uh, you know, all of this is contributing to the stress and the loneliness and burnout.
0: This definitely sounds really deep-rooted, like our mindset and feelings of, um, I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I need more. Not only is this really taxing for our own health and detrimental to our own mental and physical health, it's also, like you mentioned, part of what's been driving our overconsumption, which is causing environmental degradation. So, it's not good for anybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But you know, you know, at the same time, I feel like there's a flip side to this as well. And um, thanks to folks like you and your audience, and some of the messaging in the media that's changing as well, is that we're starting to pay more attention to, okay, now that we're confronted with this problem, you know, what are some of the solutions and how can we change the way that we live?
0: And today, your coaching and consulting work uh, focuses on helping people and organizations with personal well-being strategies and lifestyle management, so really helping us to go against the grain with this negative trend. But what is your personal biggest challenge in helping people to process and manage our modern, more stressful lifestyles?
1: <laughs> Where do I begin? <laughs> it's a long list. But I think one of the biggest challenges is that Often it's hard to see the fallout of stress when you are going through a stressful moment or when you are so immersed in a lifestyle that is not particularly healthy. But there's always this sense, especially if you're young, it's easy to think you're, that you're invincible uh, and it's, you can't really see the biological effects. You know, the inflammation that's happening in your cells is not really symptomatic, very often in the beginning. And, you know, so you won't know for years the impact that that stress and your lifestyle is having on your body and the toll that it's taking to, uh, until, you know, unfortunately, you you have sort of a crisis moment and, and something goes wrong and you fall sick. So I think that's a huge challenge is that I think people get it conceptually, but I think for people to start making change, it needs to also hit them on a visceral level and they need to sort of really understand in their bones, you know, sort of the impact of of these lifestyle factors. So so that's definitely a challenge. And I think the other big challenges in the organizations that we work with is Again, just the way our systems are set up in business, how an organization is run has a really powerful effect in, you know, the culture has a really huge impact on uh, the behavior of the people uh, at work. And so, you know, we find that the organizations that are most successful with these programs are the ones that get that employee well-being is important and and who are willing willing to invest money and resources into their employee health and well-being.
0: In light of this, do you think it's easier to change the system, which can naturally help to support people's health, or is it easier to train individuals to better take care of themselves, whether like to do with an organization or also even in terms of how our society is set up and what the media encourages in uh, our popular culture?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's like a one size fits all solution. I think it has to happen at all those levels that you mentioned. So I think it's important for individuals to start taking responsibility, become more aware, and, you know, like reach out for the support. And we all learn in different ways. So you know, do the thing that inspires you most. But then at an organizational level, absolutely, we need to pay attention to the kinds of work cultures that we're creating, because they have a huge, um, huge impact on employee health.
0: And it feels like there is a disconnect between wellness and sickness, like, it's really a spectrum, but then people feel like they're okay, until they get diagnosed with something medically, but then it might be too late. Whereas there's the middle part where you may not be so healthy, but you're not, Medically ill, but that's still not you being in optimal health.
1: Exactly. And you know, it, what's interesting is though, it does show up in ways. Uh, very subtle ways so for example if you're somebody at work and you want to excel you might start noticing that you know what you're you're not able to concentrate as as well as you've you were able to before or maybe you're not having the kinds of creative ideas that you would like to have or you're not as productive it's taking you longer to do things or it's impacting the quality of your work or your relationships uh, at work so these are sort of subtle ways that you know some of that stress uh, can show up but again you know know, unless you're aware or unless you can sort of make that link between, oh, maybe, you know, the fact that I didn't haven't gotten sleep in in a week, you know, I've only been sleeping four or five hours every night is impacting my work or the fact that I'm um, not eating properly or the fact that I'm drinking a lot of caffeine all day. I mean, just little things that that begin to add up.
0: Those are very important signs to watch out for. And it sounds like self-awareness and mindfulness are really key for us to be able to pick up on these little signals. And I do want to go into mindfulness shortly as well. But before I do that, um, I was just chatting with two conservation psychologists for episode 120, and they talked about how environmentalists, people who work in sustainability, experience higher levels of stress and pain when learning more about our current global environmental issues. But how do you think our mental and emotional well-being may impact our abilities to also help take care of? other people around us, our communities, and also be able to act more compassionately and selflessly for our planet?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good point um, and important issue. So uh, I think there's a couple of things happening there. So one is that, you know, we have all these people who are doing such good work, right, who are so passionate about uh, climate change or other conservation efforts and their heart and soul into these problems. And they are constantly working. But then what they hit up against, if they don't pay attention to their mental health, if they don't pay attention to their self-care, is that they run up against burnout. And some of the things that you were describing there are sort of, you know, signs of burnout, which is sort of the sense of mental and physical and emotional exhaustion, but also this feeling over time that the efforts that you're putting in, are not effective. So there's a sense of a lack of accomplishment, which is a very important sort of telltale sign of burnout. You know, you feel like there's a lack of efficacy in what you're doing. And then the other thing is that, unfortunately, over time, this can also degrade into a sense of cynicism and depersonalization. You know, it's sort of this idea that, you know, what's the point? You know, I've been working so hard and nobody seems to care and, you know, I should just give up. So that's one aspect. So, uh, you know, the burnout aspect, if if you don't pay attention to your own mental health and emotional health, and obviously that means that then you're not able to take care of others or the planet. And then the second aspect to remember, you know, not just for people who are doing this kind of work, but for all of us, is when we are stressed out, our our brain and our body goes into what's called the fight or flight stress response. And again, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of this response. And, you know, this is a basic survival response in the body. It's an important one to have in life threatening situations like when, you know, if you're walking on the road and there's a car coming at you so that you can get out of the way. But unfortunately, our body mounts that same kind of fight or flight response, even when you know we're triggered by an email or when some, somebody says something to us in a meeting or when a project is not going well. And so what ends up happening if we don't pay attention to our mental health and self-care is that we walk around in this chronic state of stress. And in our brain, we develop this kind of tunnel vision. The perspective in our brain literally narrows because when you're in that fight or flight state the only outcome that the brain and body is looking for is survival. And so uh, we get cut off from the other parts of our brain where we have our best creative ideas. So this means we're not going to come up with the best solutions to whatever problem we may be working on. And then the second thing is we also become really self-focused. Um, so it becomes all about us in that moment. And then it's very difficult for the, for us in, in those moments then to even think about, you know, what is the impact of the Decisions that I'm going to make. And by the way, we make really lousy decisions when in that state of part of life. So we're making bad decisions. We're really self focused. You know, we, we don't think about what is the impact of what we're doing on other people, uh, let alone the planet. So yeah, it can be a bit of a vicious cycle.
0: And this is the part where I'd love to learn more about mindfulness and self-awareness because it feels like these things are key to helping us pick up the signals that we need to pick up about our health. So from a scientific standpoint, can you share what mindfulness exactly is?
1: Uh, Sure. So mindfulness, you know, there are many definitions of mindfulness. And I, um, rather than subscribing to any one particular definition What's important to remember from a scientific point of view is that in the past 25 years or so, there's been a lot of research being done into, you know, what, what are the changes that take place in our brain and body when we practice mindfulness and compassion practices consistently? So when you're practicing 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, what we start to see is that. There's a property in the brain called neuroplasticity. And what that means is that our brains are always changing. Our brains are, you know, whether you practice mindfulness or not, our brains are constantly adapting to our behaviors, constantly adapting to our environment. And what we do with mindfulness practice is that we direct this neuroplasticity in a way that's helpful. So being mindful in any moment um, from my perspective, means doing two things. It means paying attention in this present moment. So that means that the normal tendency of the mind, if you you know if you start noticing your mind in any moment, even if you're having a conversation with somebody, is that it automatically wants to wander, right? It starts thinking about things in the past and things about the future. And so the first aspect of mindfulness is can we remember? to bring our attention back to the present moment so that we can see clearly what's happening right here, right now, and there's a very um, important quality of this attention that we pay in each moment. Um, So it's not about like being strained or putting in a lot of effort. With practice over time, we develop the skill to pay attention in a very open way, in a very curious way, in a very kind way. And this is very important because when we start paying attention to the present moment, we'll have we we'll notice all kinds of things. We might notice good things that are happening around us, but we're also going to notice the things that are not working. Uh, we're going to notice uh, all the emotions and difficulties that we may have suppressed over the um, over the years, and the, that are, that we start becoming aware of in that moment. Or we might be confronting people who might challenge us or have. Um, different opinions from us that can be very emotionally triggering. So the second aspect of mindfulness, once, once you've paid attention to the present moment, is to respond skillfully. Uh, and this is a very key part of mindfulness that often gets lost um, in the popular media around conversations around mindfulness. It's not just about focusing. It's not just about you know being productive. But it's about using our past experience uh, and learning from our past experience so that we can respond skillfully in the present moment. And, and the good thing, what the science is showing us, is that consistent practice literally brings those neuroplastic changes. So we actually see gray matter increases in the brain in areas related to stress management, in areas related to attention, in areas related to emotional regulation, um, and in areas related to our capacity to be more empathic and compassionate.
0: How does mindfulness relate to our feelings of overall life satisfaction? Are those related?
1: Yeah. So there's uh, there's evidence. There've been some studies that uh, show that in general, people. Who practice mindfulness uh, and especially compassion practice, they tend to have greater feelings uh, of positive affect. So they tend to have more instances of feeling joy and gratitude and um, greater satisfaction and contentment with their lives. So they, in, in short, you know, if you practice mindfulness and compassion, you, you will probably be tend to be a little more happier as well.
0: With this, do you think it's also reasonable to connect the dots and say that with? A population of more mindful people who have higher levels of satisfaction and like overall well being, we would also be less over consumptive and consequently environmentally destructive.
1: Well, certainly, yes, absolutely. You know, it's one thing, We you know, when you do a study, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of isolate or pinpoint some of the effects of these practices in a very direct way, like doing this, doing A will lead to this B effect. But in fact, you know, the brain is very complex. These network networks are really complex. And so there's a lot of overlap and interconnection between the practices that you're doing and then the effects that come from there. So absolutely, it's said, for example, that mindfulness and compassion are just two sides of the same coin. So if you're starting on the path of mindfulness practice, just very naturally, by way of the practice, you are also going to develop your ability to be more empathic and compassionate. And what that means is that you start to develop this ability to turn the lens of focus away from yourself. So it's not about like, me, me, me all the time. And then you start to notice, hey, you know, the fact, that I woke up today, that everything that I did today, right? So the clothes that I'm wearing, the food that I'm eating, the subway that I got into, the workplace and the building that I'm working in, the laptop that I'm using, everything that my life depends on is thanks to the hard work of many, many people all across the world. It then just becomes more natural as you start to become aware of our interdependence to say oh wait a second you know what is the impact of you know the food that I'm eating on everyone else around me or like you know uh, it it helps us to start thinking about the products that we're creating is this uh, are the products that we're building uh, what is the impact that they're having on the world you know or can I do something in a in a better way so yeah there's a a natural sort of progression towards um, thinking more ethically about our own lives when we do these practices.
0: And with this in mind, what are some simple tips that you can provide us in terms of how we can practice mindfulness in our own lives? And also, is there anything we can do as individuals to help foster more mindful, compassionate and resilient communities uh, and teams around us?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, we can do. So, and some some simple tips is, you know, if you're interested in mindfulness and compassion, I would say explore uh, developing your own personal practice. So it always starts with there. Uh, you know, before we can change the world, we we need to start with our own selves. And so I would say, you know, uh, explore. There are many resources on the internet. You know, you can try a meditation app, for example. There are thousands of them out there. There's a free app called Insight Timer that's available and it helps develop communities of practice all around the world so it's very easily accessible and then the other aspect just on a personal level is to can you start to listen more mindfully in your daily conversations with your family or or at work um, which just means to you know not interrupt interrupt somebody when they're speaking, uh, to pay full attention when uh, when they're talking, and to not just to be open and curious about what they are saying. So not to come from a place of, oh, what is my response going to be? But more sort of, you know, just let me take in everything that this person is saying. The other way that people can be proactive is just to volunteer. So again, studies show that when we give back and, and when we volunteer our time, to a cause that we may be passionate about, it actually has a direct impact on our health. So it it reduces inflammation in our cells and it uh, builds immunity. So, you know, it's a a win-win kind of situation. And then, of course, you know, when it comes to organizations and cultures, leadership buy-in is really important. Um, So if leaders at an organization can start to think about how they can model Uh, being more mindful and compassionate, how they can bring these values into an organization. That's really essential. And then, you know, of course, at Wisdom Labs, this is exactly what we're doing. So all of our programs are designed to help scale these practices uh, in the organization. And we do that. We have in-person programs where we help employees learn these skills. But then we also have an app that I hope everyone will check out. It's called Wise at Work. And it's designed specifically for workplace situations and for different uh, moods that we might be encountering in the workplace. Uh, And so there are specific practices that people can do in the moment to help them navigate that stress in their daily work lives. And then we also have a community building practice, which is called the Wiser Workplace Ambassador Program in organizations. And the idea here is that You know, in order to make change, we need um, the help and support of our colleagues. And so it's a peer-to-peer community building practice. And so Wisdom Labs supplies all the content um, so that employees can come together for half an hour every week uh, and practice together.
0: That's beautiful. I'll be sure to link to all of these things in our show notes so our listener can check it out. And the final thing I wanted to touch on is behavior change. Like we talked about earlier, it's one thing to know what we should be doing, but it's a whole nother thing to be able to do it and especially make a long lasting habit out of it. Um, and I feel like this is the same for healthy lifestyle and also like eco-friendly lifestyle. There are a lot of things that we may want to do in our ideal vision of a sustainable lifestyle, but again, it's a whole another thing to be able to actually do it. So, what exactly does it take to change our own behaviors and habits? Wow. So, this is uh, this is again
1: a, a long and complicated um, area, <laughs> and
0: we could we could we could talk for hours.
1: But if I had to summarize it, I would say, you know, when you look at all of the science behind what helps people change, there are three things that are really useful. So, one is connecting with a sense of autonomy and what that means is that you know is my behavior or is this new habit or change that i want to make is it aligned to my personal values if it is then it's more likely to stick and so you know if you're thinking about meditating more or being more mindful You know, how can I connect that to one of my personal values about how I want to show up in the world? Or if it's something about sustainability and environment, again, yes, I know the list of 10 things that I can do for the environment, but can I find the one or two things that really connect with my, the kind of person that I want to uh, be in the world? Uh, And then it becomes more likely to stick. The second thing is competence. And it's this idea of mastery. So, you know, whatever change that I'm trying to make, do I actually know how to do it well? For example, with meditation and mindfulness, it's a practice. You know, in the beginning, just like with if you're starting on an exercise program, it takes time to learn how to do something well. And as long as we're making progress step by step. uh, And so one of the tips is, you know, start small and build on your successes. uh, But then When you see that sort of slope of progress, you know, upward slope of progress, that becomes then, that continues to feed your motivation to keep doing that same thing. And then finally, the you know, one of the most crucial aspects of any kind of change is a sense of belonging and community. So the, uh, you know, the kind of support that we get from our friends, from our family, from the larger community, in whatever change that we're trying to make can actually make or break that that habit um, that we're trying to build. So again, making sure that we seek out the support, especially when we fail, when we forget to do, what we want to do and you know that will happen right it's very human it's, it's part of the change process so it's okay when you fail or when you forget to do something it's more important to just get back up and and restart and so who are the people who are aligned with your values can you contribute in some way to building this kind of community so that you can support each other in in whatever change that you're trying to make
0: Well, this is all super insightful information, and to turn this around in terms of uh, understanding how we can better help inspire positive behavior change in others, it's also important for us to then listen first and get to know them as people to see what they value because it's important that they understand how their behaviors relate to their values first. Um, it's important for us to keep focusing on encouraging progress over perfection because it's important for them to feel like they can take those incremental steps and feel good about that. And finally, it's important for us to come from a supportive and compassionate place so that we're fostering a sense of I guess, trustworthy community or at least relationship between you and the other person. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and your team. So what is next for you and where can we follow you online?
1: For us, uh, as I mentioned at Wisdom Labs, uh, we're all about addressing this epidemic of stress, burnout, loneliness, and anxiety in the workplace. And all of our programs are designed to scale this wisdom. So I would encourage folks to check out our app, Wise at it Work. It's available in the App Store. Uh, and, you know, right now we're really focused on how we can grow these efforts in the organizations that we work with. We're really excited about the Wiser Workplace Ambassador Program, like I mentioned, which is a community building program uh, in the workplace uh, as well. So, yeah, those are the two things that I'm really focused on right now.
0: Before we go into our final five, I wanted to tell you more about our sponsor, Arbor Teas Sources Loose Leaf and Organic Certified Teas. They're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their business efforts are offset by carbon fund. I really appreciate how thoughtful they are with everything that they do, and also love that they're a tight-knit and committed small team. They share lunch together every day, they compost everything they can at their facility, and just take into account how all their decisions impact the planet. To shop Arbor Teas Sustainable Organic Teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. In case you're on the go, I have this linked on our website as well, so definitely check them out after. But for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow?
1: Uh, The TED conference.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I really draw from a key
1: aspect of self-compassion, which is when I'm feeling down, I remind myself that I'm not alone and that uh, many people before me have gone through whatever difficulty it may be that I'm going through in that moment. And um, and if, you know, they've managed to navigate that obstacle and, and so can I.
0: What are you working on right now for your health? So I injured my uh,
1: left shoulder. Oh, no. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I, I, um, it,
1: and I sprained it, so yeah right now I'm just uh, working on rehabbing that and making sure I
0: get back on my um, with
1: my workout routine. Uh,
0: what are you working on right now to live more sustainably? I'm becoming even more uh, aware of um,
1: moving to a plant rich diet. So I've um, never eaten red meat, but I do eat seafood, I do eat uh, poultry, and I've you know in the past few months I'm really making more of a conscious effort to reduce those as well.
0: Uh, what makes you most hopeful about our world and planet at the moment?
1: Kids. <laughs> the I think the next generation, you know, Gen Z, millennials, all of us. But I, I was so inspired by um, Greta Th- uh, Thunberg, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Swedish school girl who has been speaking out against climate change. And she spoke at And she, you know, striked at her school to bring attention to these issues. And I was just so inspired. And so I think, you know, that's what makes me most hopeful is that we're going to be okay, because because the kids are gonna make sure that we're okay.
0: And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, I think I
1: can, you know, share one of my favorite quotes, which is by Raymond Williams. And he said that to be truly radical is to make hope possible and not despair convincing. I would hope that everyone who's listening to this podcast, um, you know, take that in and keep in mind that we're all in this together and, um, you know, keep doing step-by-step the little things that we can to make change both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us.
0: Remember, Green Dreamer, you are not alone. We're all in this together. Thank you so much for tuning in. To become one of our first Green Dreamer supporters, where you'll get bonus monthly Q&A episodes, be invited to join our Green Dreamer network, and also forever be written down to receive early previews and discounts to everything we work on in the future, just head to greendreamer.com Patreon. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Your support will really help make it possible for us to continue the show and share more resources on our website. And so, yeah, thank you so much for your support, whether through Patreon or through Patreon or just by being here and sharing the show with your friends. As always, you can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview and the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com 122 for episode 122. You can reach me with feedback on how we can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane as well as on our podcast account at greendreamerpodcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever,